Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. The Lord being our helper this morning, I wish to direct your attention to Luke chapter 1, reading verses 46 to 56, as we think for a few moments about the Song of Mary. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. This is the account of Mary's visit to her cousin Elizabeth after the angel Gabriel announced to Mary the blessing of God upon her to mother the Messiah and told her that your cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month of her pregnancy. And as soon as this encounter with the angel is over, Mary arose, it says, in verse 39, and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. And when Mary arrives on the scene and greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, as soon as the voice of your greeting or salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. She was, of course, carrying John the Baptist, who was six months along. He leapt for joy. And because of that, Elizabeth knows that Mary is favored by God, and she says, from whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You ask, how did she know that Mary was the mother of the Messiah? And the answer is because the babe leapt for joy. Now, this isn't merely a quickening or a baby moving in utero. This is a baby leaping for joy, and joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Ghost. John, of course, gives evidence here that he has also been quickened by the Holy Spirit. That's why he bears the fruit of joy, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. Mary then responds with this song of praise that we read in your hearing, My soul doth magnify the Lord. Now, it's a fact that God's people historically have been singing people. Exodus 15, when Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and stood on the banks of deliverance, they sang, The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea, the Lord hath triumphed gloriously. That's a 
song, the song of Moses. And the entire book of Psalms in your Old Testament is the Hebrew hymn book. 150 selections in the Psalter because the Jewish people were singers. God's people historically have been singers. Music, and particularly singing, is uniquely designed to give expression to the depths of human feeling and emotion. Music appeals to the soul in a way that uh, arguably no other medium, whether literature or art or the sciences, can. And may I say that one of the things that I enjoy the most about Christmas, and you may say I enjoy the decorations, and someone else says I enjoy the uh, presents, a lot of children like the gifts, don't they? But you know what I enjoy most about Christmas? I enjoy the, the music, the songs of Christmas. The songs and the hymns and the carols are one of the things that bless me the most about the holidays. I love the songs of Christmas. Interestingly, there are four of those songs here in Luke chapters 1 and 2. We have the song of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, recorded at the end of Luke chapter 1. We have the song of the angels, the Gloria in Luke chapter 2. And then we have uh, the song of Simeon at the end of that chapter. But probably the most well-known of these songs is this one that I've read in your hearing this morning, Mary's song of praise called the Magnificat, based on the first word in the Latin version, magnify, my soul doth magnify the Lord, the Magnificat. Now, to magnify something is to increase your perception of an object. One of my favorite toys as a child was a magnifying glass. We didn't have uh, video games when I was a kid. I know I'm dating myself, but a lot of you can identify, I have no doubt. But I loved a magnifying glass, especially in West Texas where we had an ample supply of insects. And I won't elaborate any further. You know what a magnifying glass does? It doesn't make the object bigger but it increases your perception of the object, your ability to see it. It magnifies it so that you can see it better. And when we magnify the Lord, we can't make him any greater, can we? God is great. His greatness is unsearchable, says Psalm 135, verse 3. And you and I cannot lift him any higher than he already is. Somebody said, let's lift the Lord up. Well, my friends, he's lifted already as high as he can be lifted, higher than the kings of the earth. Christ has been highly exalted. And you and I cannot lift him any higher or make him any greater or enhance him in any sense. But we can increase our perception of him, can't we? We can talk about him more. And we can understand more about him. And we can do better in our efforts to extol and exalt him. That's what the word magnify means in Mary's song. This is a divinely inspired praise and worship song. You may know that there is an entire new category of music over the past couple of decades called praise music. Somebody called it 7-Eleven music. You know, the same seven words repeated 11 times. 
And I know that there's probably a place for it, and a lot of people like it. I prefer the richly theological hymns of uh, John Newton and Philip Doddridge and Isaac Watts. You know, I like some meat with my meals. More than just, I'm a candy, I like candy, but I appreciate a little savory meat and vegetables and bread from time to time as well. And I don't mean to throw off on praise music, but if you want to know a real praise song, a divinely inspired praise song, read Mary's song of praise here in Luke chapter 1. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And what makes this praise song different than some of the modern praise and worship songs? I suggest that this song, first of all, is theologically substantive because it is deeply rooted in Scripture. You don't have to turn to all of these places, but I want to give you just a sampling of the verses that are the source material for the song that Mary composed on this occasion, verses from the Old Testament. And if you have a marginal reference in your Bible in the center column, You'll probably see many of these verses referenced there beside their corresponding verse. Verses 46 and 47 are almost verbatim of Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I mean, the similarities are uncanny. And obviously Mary, who's now expecting a child as a young woman, a virgin, knew about Hannah's story, how that the barren woman Hannah was supernaturally favored by God to give birth to Samuel. And Hannah overflowed in praise to God in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in a song that is almost identical in many respects to Mary's Magnificent here in Luke chapter 1. Verse 48 is a quotation from 1 Samuel 1.11. Verse 50 is a quote from the 103rd Psalm, verse 17. Psalm 103, verse 17. Verse 51 makes striking reference to the Exodus narrative in Exodus 15, verses 6 through 11, when it talks about God hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. For Exodus 15 talks about how the Lord made bare his holy arm and delivered Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then he scattered the proud, Pharaoh and his mighty army, in the depths of the sea. Verses 52 and 53, again reference 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Also, the book of Job, chapter 5, verses 11 to 18. And then verses 54 and 55 reference the 44th chapter of Isaiah, verse 21, and Psalm 105, verses 6 through 10. So this song of Mary is taken from 1 Samuel, from Psalms, from Exodus, from Job, from Isaiah, it sounds like that Mary was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the Bible informed her worship. This wasn't simply an emotional outburst, but this was a rational and an informed kind of praise. I believe Mary had spent her time on the 50-mile journey from Nazareth down to Elizabeth's house in the hill country of Judah, meditating on the word of God. Obviously, the angel has just come to her and explained that she, as a virgin, has been favored to bring the Messiah into the world. Her mind is probably in a whirl. She's already wondered, how can this be? And the angel has explained that the power of God will come upon you and the Holy Ghost 
shall overshadow you. That it's a supernatural power at work here. And Mary now begins to reflect on what a great privilege it is to be the Jewish woman to bring the anticipated Messiah into the world. I mean, this was called the desire of women in the Old Testament for every Jewish girl wanted to have the privilege to bear the Messiah. And Mary now has been singled out by God. This little peasant girl, she's probably a teenager, 16 to 18 years of age. Her cousin Elizabeth is likely in her 40s, which would be considered uh, an older woman in that day. It's not considered that anymore. She's infertile. Elizabeth is. But God has supernaturally blessed her to conceive in her old age. And now Mary has been given the news that you will bring the Messiah into the world. Now, she's probably told Joseph. I don't know if she's divulged the angel's visit to him yet, but she leaves Nazareth for three months. It says in our reading this morning, she stayed with Elizabeth for three months before she returned to her own house. So no doubt to silence some of the talk and the gossip around town, Mary has gotten out of town and left Joseph to wonder what he's going to do. And I think it was during that three-month interval that the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph that we read about in Matthew chapter 1 last week and told him to fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. But I want you to notice how on this journey from Nazareth down to Elizabeth's home in the hill country of Judah, which is near Jerusalem. So she comes from the north, journeys to the south. It's about 50 miles. No doubt Mary spent the time on that journey reflecting on what had happened and meditating on how her case paralleled the case of Hannah in the Old Testament. And her heart is welling up with joy as she thinks about the significance of this. I mean, this is not a passing ho-hum news item that is printed in today's newspaper, and by Wednesday, we've forgotten all about it. This is one of those defining moments, one of those watershed moments in life. And as Mary is meditating on Scripture, she begins to think about Hannah. She thinks about the Psalms of David, for she is of the house of David, the lineage of David. So she would have been very familiar with the Psalms. She thinks about Exodus, Job, and Isaiah, Now, I want to ask you a question. How do you think she was able to meditate on all of these different scriptures in the Old Testament? You say, well, God just probably revealed it to her. You mean out of the blue? Does that ever happen to you? Have you ever just learned calculus out of the blue? Or learned a Bible verse just by direct revelation? My friends, I think that it's obvious that Mary had previously committed much of scripture to memory as a young girl. Bible memorization is a discipline that has fallen on hard times in our day. But may I suggest for your consideration, my friend, that it is one of the most crucial aspects of living a faithful Christian life because the Holy Spirit at a time of need can take a verse that you've hidden away in your heart and he can bring it back to your memory so that you can find comfort, guidance, wisdom, strength, resources to help somebody else. 
How important is it to do what David said in Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Or like Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You say, well, Brother Mike, I don't have a very good memory. You have a better memory than you let on, I dare say. What time does your favorite show come on TV? What day and what time? What time do you take the blue pill and what time do you take the green pill and what time do you take the red pill and you say, oh yeah, I've got all that. What is your cell phone number? What's your wife's cell phone or your husband? What's your child's cell phone number? What are the birth dates of your loved ones? What are the streets that you've lived on in your life? Did you know I can still name? You say, well, you have a different brain structure than I do. Well, maybe that's not your cup of tea, but I dare say most of us can remember a lot more than we think we can. And if you put effort into it, even as a young person, young people, I want to say to you this morning that there's nothing that will help you any more in life than when your mind is fresh and uncluttered by the 101 things that trouble the rest of us. When your mind is still fresh as a youth, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. Take some time to commit scripture to memory. Say, well, how do you do that, Brother Mike? You meditate on it. You go over and over and over it. You continue to digest it. You continue to roll it over and over in your mind. I like the way Elder Harold Hunt says that he memorizes scripture. He reads it in a sort of cadence. He takes phrases. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And he repeats it, my soul doth magnify the Lord, my soul doth magnify the Lord, my soul doth magnify the Lord. He puts it in a cadence like a song. And then the next phrase, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. You say, Brother Mike, I have too many more important things to do than to think about Scripture and to hide it away in my heart. Oh, my friends, may I say this is the difference in some of the godly saints of yesteryear and the superficial kind of commitment and faith that is so present in our world, self-included. I want to testify that the scriptures that I memorized as an 11-year-old boy are still with me to this day. John 10, 26 through 30, But ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. I can still quote that entire passage. It's the first, verse ever, first passage I ever memorized. There are verses I memorized a few weeks ago by writing it out on a post-it note that I'd have to work real hard <laughs> to remember this morning. You put me on the spot and I'll forget it. But if, I, if you're, nobody's watching, I can do it, you know. But the point is, Mary was familiar with the Bible. And true worship is not something just emotional, but it is in spirit, yes, indeed. But it's also in truth, it's informed by the Word of God. I want to say secondly, as verses 46 and 47 indicate, true worship arises from a person's innermost being. Notice the words, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, these two words, my soul and my spirit, are parallel or synonymous words, and Mary is saying, my praise has come from my heart. She's talking about the heart. I suggest that Mary's Magnificat teaches us that 
Worship is not merely a matter of repeating certain words, of just going through a memorized, rote kind of ceremonial expression. You may know that both Testaments expose the danger of formalism in worship or just going through the motions of worship. Joel 2.13 says, rend your heart and not your garments. God says, it's not enough that you just go through the motions and act like you're sorry for your sins. He says, I want to see the rending done, not in your coat, but in your heart. Rend your heart. That's what God is interested in. Lamentations 3.41 says, let us lift up our hearts with our hands. Somebody says, oh, I've worshipped. I lifted up my hands. Well, the question is, is your heart involved? Just don't go through the ceremony, he says. Don't give the appearance. That's not enough as far as God is concerned. But let us lift up our heart with our hands. You may know in the New Testament, Jesus exposed the Pharisees for the hypocrisy of drawing nigh to him with their words and with their lips honoring him, but their hearts were far from him. And it is possible for you and me to come to church. You say, well, I've worshiped. I've been to church. I've repeated the songs, thought about the part I was singing. Let's see, I was singing bass or I was singing alto or soprano. And so I thought about the song I was singing and uh, okay. And I listened to the sermon, Brother Mike's weekly offering and uh, bowed when Brother so-and-so led the congregation in prayer. And now I've worshiped. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I don't want to say anything to make you think that your presence is not wanted and needed and required by God. But may I say there's more involved than just showing up. Our hearts need to be involved. We need to be focused and conscious of the things that we're singing, making them our own. And of the word that we're hearing, that it's not just the preacher's weekly homily, but it is God speaking to us, if indeed it is thoroughly biblical, God speaking to me through his word. We should hear the word, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of the living God. The hymn writer writes like this, we come to hear Jehovah speak. To hear the Savior's voice, thy face in favor, Lord, we seek. Now let our hearts rejoice. Yes, my beloved, worship is a matter of the heart. Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You see, in contrast to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, this song wells up from the depths of Mary's soul. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. May I say her heart at this moment is overflowing with joy, thanksgiving, and adoration. Notice thirdly the object of her song of praise. My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in what? God my Savior. She is magnifying one who is inherently magnificent, who deserves to be magnified. And in verses 48 to 55, she highlights several divine attributes. I want to go through them briefly. First, the sovereign grace and mercy of God. You see that in the word Savior. My spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. 
Now that's almost an identical quote again from Hannah's Song of Praise, 1 Samuel chapter 2, where she says, I rejoice in thy salvation. And the concept of salvation in the Bible is the idea of deliverance. And of course, we could say that God delivers his people in many ways. There's an ultimate deliverance, deliverance from the consequences of our sins and the curse of the law. But surely Hannah, when she says, I rejoice in thy salvation, felt that God had delivered her from infertility, from barrenness, from the shame and the heckling of Peninnah, her counterpart, you know, who had children but was constantly putting Hannah down because she didn't have any children. God had delivered her and granted her her soul's request. We might call that a time salvation or a salvation that doesn't have eternal ramifications, but it certainly is a deliverance from God. And my beloved, I believe that God delivers all of his children in many, many ways in our lives. He's delivered me from accidents, delivered me in times of crisis, from despair. He's delivered me from hopelessness, delivered me from sins that would have wrecked my life, no doubt. He's delivered me when I didn't know he had delivered me. Has God ever delivered you? And may I say, when Mary says, God is my Savior, she couldn't mean that he has delivered me in so many ways in my life, and even at this moment, delivered me from insignificance because he regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. But I suggest that it's not wrong to take this word Savior in the ultimate sense and to understand Mary to be saying here, I myself am in need of salvation because I'm a sinner. We know that there is the idea among some professing Christians that Mary was immaculate, that she was sinless, that Mary had no sin before the birth of Jesus nor after. She's eternally sinless. And I dare say that Mary herself indicates that that's not the case for she confesses her need of a Savior. And only sinners need a Savior. Do you need a Savior? Why? Well, because of my sins. Well, Mary said, I need a Savior too. Mary herself would have admitted that she was in need of salvation. And therefore, the thing that is the object of her praise, this song of worship and praise, is the sovereign grace and mercy of God. As verse 50 says, And His mercy is on them that fear Him from generation to generation. Now, God is merciful, but His Saving mercy is definite and special. It's not general on every human being without exception, but it's on them that fear him. And who fears God? Only those who've been touched by his spirit and tendered by his grace. The reprobate do not fear God. I don't know how a person, I don't understand how a person can use the name of God in vain, can blaspheme the name of God. One of the things that hurts me most about modern movies is they, every one of them, almost without exception, feels the need for some odd reason to use the name of the Holy One as an expletive, as a curse word, and it just grates against my soul. It hurts me. It's not right. And there are people who can do it with impunity, can throw it around. And my beloved, may I say for your consideration, the name of God is to be hallowed. 
He is to be reverenced and feared. When we come in here to church, obviously we want to be ourselves. We want to feel free. We want to recognize that we're all human beings and we make mistakes. And, but you know, this is a place of reverence. We should, I think, dress at least as well for church as we do for work, for our secular jobs. We should, I think, put forth our best efforts to sing to the best of our ability. We should remember that we're in the presence of the Holy One. And you say, well, Brother Mike, he's a God of grace. Yes, he's also a God of holiness and reverence. And his mercy is on them that fear him. And this is not a slavish fear, but it's a reverential fear like a child would have for a loving father. You know, I had never wanted my dad to be disappointed in me. Uh, and uh, I, even though I knew he loved me, I respected him. And I knew better than to cross him. I knew not to push him too far. <laughs> Most of us understand that dynamic. Well, we're not talking about a savage beast that is unprincipled and that just lets loose in a tirade. We're talking about a measured respect that derives from one who is loving and stable, but yet serious about his law. God's mercy is on them that fear him. Notice verse 48. When I talk about God's sovereign grace and mercy, here's the thought. He's our Savior. He's a God of mercy on his people. And here's how he demonstrates his sovereign grace. Mary says, For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth... All generations shall call me blessed. Mary, you were blessed. You've been blessed by God. And here's the sense in which I've been blessed, she says, for God regarded my low estate. That word regarded means to notice. God has looked upon. He has seen me. He's noticed me. Same word in Exodus 2.25 and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. God regarded them. He noticed them. Ever feel that you're not seen? In pastoral counseling through the years, I've had people tell me, I just feel like my husband or my wife, they don't even see me. I just feel like I'm invisible to them. They just take me for granted. Or maybe a child feels that mom and dad are so busy with their hobbies and their jobs and their responsibilities that they don't take time to notice the child. We've all encountered situations in life in which a person in a higher class snubbed someone who was in a lower class. You know, I'm too good to talk to the riffraff. I don't have time for the peasants. I'm one of the nobility, you know. We've seen that, haven't we? But notice Mary though she is definitely in the lower class, the ordinary, the common class of society. She is not of the nobility. She's a poor peasant girl. But yet she rejoices in the fact that she has not been overlooked nor forgotten. She is not insignificant, for God has regarded. He's noticed the lowest state of his handmaiden. And because of that, everyone will say that I've been richly blessed. You talk about the real Cinderella story. When the Prince Charming notices the poor girl and sets his affection upon her, Mary is 
the real Cinderella. And this is sovereign grace, sovereign mercy. It's on a particular people. It's not based on anything in Mary, but it's based solely on the Lord's sovereign will and purpose. Why would God regard the likes of Mary? Why would he choose her over every other Jewish woman alive at that time? You say, well, there must have been something special about her. No, my friends, it's simply that God was pleased to condescend and bestow favor upon her Not because there was anything noteworthy about her. She says, I'm in this low state. But yet, he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Mary feels the condescending favor of God. That's what grace is. If you want a good definition for grace, grace is condescending favor. The Old Testament word translated by kindness or grace is a picture word, and it's the idea of stooping down. Like a parent would stoop down to communicate to a child. It's condescending, you know, to to get down on their level, to get low. For the superior to stoop to the level of the inferior, that's the word for grace. Mary says that's what the God of heaven has done. He has stooped down to my low estate. Psalm 138, verse 6 says, Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Psalm 136, verse 23, says it like this, God remembered us in our lowest state, for his mercy endureth forever. No doubt Mary is reflecting on some of these verses. This young peasant girl from a poor family is simply overwhelmed at the privilege bestowed upon her by God in bringing the Messiah into this world. She was blessed to give birth to and to be the mother of her own Savior. Her son was also her Savior. Isn't that an amazing thought? May I say this same condescending mercy, even though you and I will not be blessed to be the mother or the earthly guardian of Jesus, Yet the same mercy that marked her out and favored her has marked out and favored every one of his children. It has distinguished you from the rank and file of fallen humanity and made you a child of God even though you were unworthy of it. Mary rejoices in the sovereign grace of God. Secondly, the almighty power of God as we see in verse 49. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Verse 35 had talked about that power when he says the power of the highest shall overshadow. It was power that had worked in her virgin womb so that she conceived the Messiah. And verse 51 speaks of the strength of his arm. The arm of God in the Bible is a, a literary image, an idiom that suggests his power extended His power in action to help us. It doesn't mean God has body parts. God is a spirit, says John 4.24. But when it speaks of his mouth, it's describing his word, his truth, his mind, the mind of the Lord. It's talking about his wisdom, his knowledge. When it speaks of his mighty arm, it's describing God in action. The Messiah, the extension of God's power. 
to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, Isaiah 53.1. That's talking about the power of God in salvation through the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the arm of God. And he's the almighty one. Don't you love that thought? He that is mighty hath done to me great things. For holy is his name. So she speaks of his sovereign grace and mercy. She praises God for his almighty power and for his ineffable holiness. Holiness that is not shared with anyone else. Revelation 15, 4 says, For thou only art holy. You know, we sing that in the hymn by Reginald Heber. Holy, holy, holy. One of the verses says, Only thou art holy. No man is inherently holy. You and I are born corrupt, sinful. But God, my beloved, is holy. And that word holy suggests that God is transcendent. He's greater. He's different from everything that we're familiar with. We are temporary. God is eternal. We are weak. He is strong. We are changeable. God is unchangeable and immutable. We are sinful. God is pure and holy. The Holy One. In the presence of the Holy, you and I should be reverent, but we should also rejoice. And then she says in verses 52 to 53, He's a God of overruling providence. Notice this language. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. In other words, God in his providence is involved in history. Here are things Mary says he has done. He has dethroned the powerful and enthroned those that were deemed to be low and unworthy. He hath put down the mighty and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. You see, this is the kind of paradox that is inherent in the truth of the Word of God. God's Word is based in many respects on paradox. Do you know the way to keep something is to give it away? According to the Bible, there is that which withholdeth more than is meat, like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, the miser. It's mine, it's mine, it's all mine. There is that which withholdeth, and it tendeth to poverty. But then there is that which scattereth, says Proverbs, and yet it increaseth. Jesus said, cast your bread on the waters. What will happen? It shall return to you in many ways. Yes, my friends, the happiest people I know are not the grabbers and the getters, the selfish, but the liberal, generous givers, the people who are ready to pass on to others the same kind of grace that God has given to them. That's one of the paradoxes of the Word of God. What about this one? The way to be lifted up is to humble yourself and to put yourself low. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. You see, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And perhaps I should rephrase it. God's kingdom is a right-side-up kingdom. It's this world that's upside down. It's this world that calls good evil and evil good and light for darkness and darkness for light. But my friends, God's word sets it right side up like it should be. And it says that the humble will be favored by God. But the proud will be sent empty away. In his providence, God manages 
the world to work his will to overrule and to involve himself in the lives of men. And then she praises God finally for his covenant faithfulness. Verse 54, he hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, that is his covenant faithfulness. God made a covenant. That's what the word mercy means. God made a covenant with Abraham. As she goes on to say in verse 55, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. God had made a covenant with the Jews, with Abraham and the patriarchs and Israel forever. And Mary says that God has helped his people because he remembered his covenant. He's faithful to his word. So I want you to notice how theologically informed her song of praise is. She's praised God for his sovereign grace, for his almighty power, his inscrutable holiness, his overruling providence, and his covenant faithfulness. How lovely, how excellent, how precious is this summation that she gives in her song of God's character. You say, Brother Goins, what does this mean for me this morning? I want to drive home the two-letter word, the monosyllable, my, in verse 47 as our application this morning. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. Praise and worship in the truest sense is meant to be personal. Can you say the Lord is my shepherd? Do you understand the personal element, the existential element of true faith? Have you ever made personal confession? Psalm 66, 16, David says, come and hear. Notice this invitation. Here's David's poster on the street corner. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. You know, that's one of the greatest joys of preaching for me is I get to brag on the Lord, not only from what he says in his word, but I get to witness. I get to tell you what he's been in my life, what he's done for me. I'm a living example of his sovereign grace. I'm a monument of his grace. <laughs> I'm one of his trophies. He's changed me. He's transformed me. And you are too. My friends, I believe that every heaven-born soul wants to confess to others there's something deep inside of us who wants to brag on the Lord and tell others what he has done for my soul John 9 25 the blind man said one thing I know whereas I was blind now I see that's his testimony he's given me sight can you see do you have an understanding of truth to some degree today do you at least know who he is do you know the Lord and do you have an interest in learning more about him? Then my friends, it's because he has opened your eyes and you have a personal interest in him. Like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. May I invite you to join Mary and me this morning in magnifying the Lord, as Psalm 34 verse 3 says, O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together, for he that is mighty has done great things for me.
He has noticed me and regarded my lowest state and has saved me from my sins. We will